Welcome to the New Hope Podcast. Our mission at New Hope is to engage our city with the love of Jesus, one relationship at a time. We pray this message encourages you in encountering God's love and displaying it to your city. We hope to see you soon. Jesus, we thank you. Um, and we pray that in this moment that there be no distractions. But Father, that as we open your word, that we would hear from you, that you would speak to us. And Father, I know that we are gathered here tonight because we want a word from you. We need you. We don't just need another man's opinions. We need your word. And so, Father, would you meet each person, myself included, all of us in this room, right where we are? Would you love on us? Would you pour your grace and mercy upon us? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, we're continuing in a series that we started last week called The Story of Scripture. Now, um, last week I went home which I don't always do this, but I went home um, because uh, last week was a week where I was, I was excited. It's a new series. I've been planning this series for over six months. I was really excited. Put I put a lot of time into last week's sermon. So I went home last week, and you got to know that I'm a words of affirmation guy. And so I, I need my wife to tell me that she loves me. I need my wife to tell me Baby, that was the best sermon I ever heard. Like, I need her to say these things. And I'd been home for about an hour, and she had said nothing, right? She had said nothing. And so, I, so I'm just waiting. So I finally was like, Jenna, what did you think of the sermon? Immediately, without hesitation, you got to know my wife. And if you know my wife, this is just really funny to you. She just said, way too long. Just way too long, way too much information. You know, I, she said, about halfway through, I just went on to the grocery list. That's what my wife said to me. And I said, babe, it wasn't that long. And she goes, go check. So I went to the podcast and realized I spoke for an hour. And I need you to know that I immediately went, oh, my gosh, my wife was right. She always is. But my wife was really right. And so I say that to say this. It is not my intent to preach for an hour week in and week out. And I won't do that most weeks. However, last week we had to cover Genesis 1 through 11. And to recap Genesis 1 through 11 quickly, you'll understand why we needed to cover so much of it. But we looked at last week, the plot of the story of Scripture is God created all things. Then man fell by rebelling against God, mankind. And then act three of the plot was God's redeeming work, which we see throughout all of Scripture. And then it ends in restoration, act four, or recreation, where God makes all things new, just like he did in Genesis 1 and 2, where all things are good. And we covered Genesis 1 through 11, which has act one, creation, act two, the fall, and the beginnings of act three, redemption, all in last week's message. And so it was long, however, that will not be the norm for us. Some weeks we will do what we did last week where we kind of give an exhaustive look at all of the chapters that are necessary in that area that we're discussing. But in some weeks we'll do what we're doing tonight, just looking really at Genesis chapter 15, where our reading for the last few days moving on pretty much covers all of the rest of Genesis. And my goal tonight is not to do that. But my goal tonight is for us to jump in and clearly define what we see in Act 3, redemption. And so what I want to do, I want to begin reading in, in Genesis chapter 15. We're going to just read Genesis 15 together, and then we'll jump into tonight's sermon more specifically. Now remember, um, Genesis 15 will not be on the screen. If it's the passage that I'm teaching from, it won't be on the screen. So you need a Bible in front of you. There's one in the seat backs in front of you. But if I refer to other passages outside of Genesis, it will be on the screen. So Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, would you read along with me? 
After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, for your own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12. And the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Then verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land for the river, or from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. As we begin to look at this picture, I want us to remind us of the story plot of Scripture. God created all things, and it was good. And God created man in his image. That means we reflected the characteristics of God and we reflected the dominion of God. We were called to rule over all of creation. But in Genesis 3, we rebelled against God's kingship by saying we want to be like God. We want to be king of all things. And it was an act of pride and it was an act of trying to take over God's kingship. Because of that, we were cast out of God's presence And brokenness and sin not only came in death, not only came to mankind, but all of God's creation. But in the middle of that, we saw that there was a promise of a potential Savior that would come. But as we track the rest of Genesis on through verse 11, we see that God in his judgment bring a flood over all of creation, which we saw last week was an undoing of God's creation. When you look at the flood, the theological implications is that everything that God did in Genesis 1 to create, he undid technically in the flood. Then we saw Noah as the second Adam, the potential Adam to start from afresh. Maybe Noah and his family will do things differently. But we saw sin and rebellion continue to grow in all of creation. And we see it that Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, we see sin gathered together in unity to rebel against God and once again trying to take over 
God and saying, we will make a, a, a city and a tower all the way to God. And Genesis 11 ends with this idea, in one sense, of everything going negative and bad, and it leaves you asking the question, is there hope? And we talked about last week how Moses is writing Genesis 1 through 11, not just to give us facts and information, although those things are relevant to conversations like creation versus evolution and some of those things in Genesis 1 and 2, but the purpose of him writing was to answer the question, is there hope, with the answer of yes, and tracking that there is hope, and specifically to, give a, to let the Israelite people see how from Genesis 3 and sin, through um, Adam and Eve, onto Seth, and then the Seth to Noah, the lineage from Seth to Noah, then Noah onto Abraham, and then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob onto them at the time of the writing of the Moses and the Israelite people was tracking how there was coming hope and he was going to be born of the Israelite people. So when we jump in from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12, we are clearly stepping into Act 3, redemption, where we see God stepping in to redeem his people. So I want you to flip to Genesis chapter 12, where we see the first sign of the covenant that God makes with Abram. Now, as you're doing that, let me say this. Um, Abram eventually gets his name changed to Abraham, and he is referred to Abraham throughout the rest of Scripture. I, tonight, am going to refer to him as Abraham, even though we're reading passages where he's still named Abram. Okay, just by default, my mind's going to go there. So if you hear me say Abraham, I'm referring to Abram, the same person. You'll see his name changed in Genesis 17. So, but in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, he's still Abram, but we're going to call him Abraham. Um, When Abraham, when God makes the covenant with him, I want you to read Genesis 12, beginning in verse 3, where God's explaining this covenant. And he says, I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It begs this question, why did God make a covenant with Abraham? Why did God make a covenant with anyone but specifically, why Abraham? Did Abraham have do something to, in order to earn God's trust and respect? Actually, when we see and look at Abraham, we understand Abraham came from the Ur of Chaldeans, which was a very polytheistic culture, that before God reached out, redeemed, and made a covenant with Abraham, it was likely that Abraham and his family were also pagan and polytheistic, meaning it wasn't because of his faithfulness to God that he made the covenant, but instead God chose him to make a covenant because God was going to redeem his people through covenant and he had to choose someone, but he chose Abraham and his sovereignty, not because of something Abraham did to earn it, but because of God's covenant grace, he chose Abraham for the purpose of not just making a covenant with Abraham, but through that covenant, he says in Genesis 12, 3, and you, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was God from Genesis 11, is there hope? Stepping into Genesis 12, where God's stepping in and saying, there is hope, and then hope is coming in a covenant relationship, and through that covenant relationship, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Which brings me to my main point tonight, and this main point of the sermon is simply this, redemption is found in covenantal relationship with God. Redemption is found in covenantal relationship with God. And we're going to look at that in two ways. First, the uniqueness of the covenant. I want us to look at the uniqueness of the covenant. Some, as we talk about covenant, might simply ask the question, is there a better word for covenant in our culture today besides covenant? Covenant seems really kind of archaic. 
Wouldn't there be a better word? And the truth is, there's not a better word because our culture doesn't really have a word that gives the concept of covenant. One that might come close is a contract. See, when we think about a contract and covenant, they have a lot of similarities. They're different, but they have a lot of similarities. So, for example, when we think about a a contract, it says that I will do this for you in agreement if you do this for me, and we will be faithful to that contract as long as both parties are faithful. But if one breaks the contract, then the contract is broken, and there's no obligation for relationship whatsoever. Well, covenant is more than just a contract. But our society, and I'll explain more the differences, but for a second, our society doesn't really have a category for covenant because of our idea of contract and the fact that we live in such an individualistic and consumeristic culture. Meaning contract is catered towards individualism and consumerism. It says this, that I will be for you what I should be for you as long as you are for me what you should be for me. I will be what I should be as long as that you should be what you should be, you should be for me. And if you're not what you should be for me, then I don't have to be what I should be for you. It's a contract. It's a conditional consumeristic relationship that says that I am in this for me and for my benefit. And if, for whatever reason, this relationship is no longer for my individualistic, consumeristic benefit, then I will get out of the relationship. That's a contract, and that's a faithful definition of a contract. But covenant says something different. So contract says, I will be what I should be as long as you are what you should be. But covenant says, I will be what I should be whether you are being what you should be or not. There's a difference. Contract says, I will be what I should be as long as you are being what you should be. Covenant says, I will be what I should be whether or not You are being what you should be. So covenant, to define it, would simply be this idea. It is a chosen relationship by two parties who bind themselves in relationship together. Okay, bind themselves in relationship together. Now, I don't want to give the idea that every relationship should be a covenant relationship. Every relationship should not be a covenant relationship but the most important relationship should be. So for example, um, when I moved to New York, I immediately needed to enter a bunch of relationships with things around me in New York. For example, I needed a barber, right? And so I found the barber that was closest to me. I was like, there's a good start. Why? Because that, that co- as a consumer, the one closest to me has the best opportunity to benefit me. So I went to the barber that was closest to me. And that worked for a while. Until I got to the point where the product I felt as though wasn't to the level that I was wanting. So guess what? I, as a consumer, went and found a barber who was not as close, but I felt was more consistent. Right? We, we might do this with our grocery store. I'm going to go to this grocery store, but I promise you that, that if there was another grocery store, another person who could sell me something better or cheaper, then as a consumer, we do that. Why? Because those are contractual consumeristic relationships. And so not all relationships should be covenant, but the closest relationships to us should be covenant. The best picture we see of covenant as as a picture to picture is the covenant relationship in marriage. See, marriage, likewise, is a covenant. It's a covenant where we step in 
And in our culture today, we see even the definition of marriage change to more contractual. But biblically, marriage is a covenant. You step into it and you have those relationships. Now, one of the things that we often see um, as we think about covenant is that covenant can be scary, even when we think about marriage. So, for example, when I stepped into a covenant relationship with my wife, there is ultimately these things of going, hey, I'm going to commit my life to you no matter what, for richer, for poor, you know, that idea where they go back and forth. And the, what you're saying is, is scary because there's some things that I don't, might not know will happen in our marriage and in my wife and in the future, right? There's some things that are scary. So in a sense, covenant relationships are scary. However, we can step into covenant relationships because we know that when we step into a covenant relationship with someone, at least we believe that they're saying, I'm in this for us, not for me. See the difference? Covenant relationship steps in and says, hey, I will be what I should be for you in this relationship no matter what. It's this moment where you go, it's no longer about the individual and the consumer, but instead it's about the partnership as a whole, and it can be a scary thing. See, our relationship with God must be covenantal, not contractual, and here's why. Modern people today often say, you've heard this, that I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not a religious person. You ever heard anybody say that to you? I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not a religious person. Here's what they're saying. Is I, is I believe in God, and I want a relationship with God, and I want to have these things with God. But religion, in the good sense, and I'm using it in the good sense. Sometimes I use it in the negative sense. But in the good sense, religion would say that I've got to go to church, and I've got to do certain things. I've got to be in relationship with other people. I've, you know, I've got to be authentic with people. I've got to commit myself to people. I've got to read my Bible. I've got to do these things. I've got to be obedient to God. I've got to serve people. See, that's the religion side of things. I want to be spiritual. I want to believe in God, and I want to have these things, but I don't, I don't want the religion. Here's what they're saying, is they want relationship without covenant. They're saying that I, I want a relationship with God that is for my benefit. But the second it's not for my benefit, I'm out. That's contract. You get that? That's what a contract says. And see, God relates to us in covenants, And it has to relate to us in covenant. Therefore, redemption is covenant because as we think about stepping into relationship, because when we look at the gospel, and we're going to see this clearly in this passage in just a second, but we're going to see that when God steps into a covenant relationship, he ultimately does it unconditionally, meaning that he is promising to be for us what he promises to be no matter if we're that to him in return. We're going to see a beautiful picture of this, but when we look at it, when we look at covenant, for us, the implications are that God relates to us in covenant, and we're seeing that here in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. So let me answer that real quickly. Why Genesis 12, 15, and 17? Genesis 12, 15, and 17 are all God at different times realizing and reemphasizing the covenant that's being made. So we see aspects of it in Genesis 12, aspects of it in 15, aspects of it in 17. But it's all God making a covenant. Here's the point. When we look at the four acts of Scripture, the four plot twists of Scripture, let's not miss this, creation, fall, redemption. When we step into redemption, that we are separated from Act 2, we're separated because of the fall, God begins to redeem his people. And in Genesis 12, as that redemption begins, and how does he do it? By creating a covenant relationship with Abraham.
But in Genesis 15, we see how specifically he makes that covenant relationship. And that brings us to truth number two. We see the hero of the covenant. The uniqueness of the covenant, and it's a unique relationship like any other that we have. Even in marriage, it's, not, it's only a symbol and a picture of the uniqueness of the covenant that God gives us in relationship with him. But it's only ultimately unique and able to be unique because of truth number two, the hero of the covenant. I'm going to read again the ending of Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to see this. But let me explain to you what, what, it, what you're reading and why it makes sense. So, for example, let's go to Genesis 15, verse 8. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I will possess it? So God says, I'll bless you, which is part of the covenant. And how, but then Abraham says, how will I know? And he says in verse 9, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these. He cut them in half and laid them each half against the other. So here's the picture. Is Abraham is told to go get all these animals. And imagine them lined up. Okay, we're, we're going to just be visual for a second. I, I recognize uh, kids in the room, but we're going to be visual for a second. He lines the animals up, and then he literally cuts them in half and lays one side on this side and one side on that. For us, we listen to this and goes. That's crazy. This makes absolutely no sense. What is this all about? But you got to understand in ancient Near East culture, which is the culture of this time, that this was common and this is how you made a covenant. Specifically in the Hebrew, literally translated, it translates cut a covenant. We translate it make a covenant because we don't understand what cut means, but it's literally the Hebrew word for cut a covenant. Because to make a covenant was always done this way, a major covenant. So now we see uh, other covenants in, in simpler ways, but major covenants were done in this way, where you cut animals in half as a sign of the covenant. Now, but that wasn't all of it. So here's the picture, um, is you have two type of covenantal relationships. One is between equal parties, husband and wife, covenantal relationship of equal parties. But the primary form of covenantal relationship in the Old Testament is this picture of a king and subjects, not equal parties. One superior, one just got conquered. King, subjects. So here's what would happen. A king would conquer a land or conquer a people. And the person who represented that people, maybe the previous king who just got conquered, would be required to do this. He would take animals... He would cut them in half, and the subject, not the king, the subject who just got conquered, would make a covenant with that king. They'd come to agreement on him being uh, subject to him and him serving the king, and then the subject would walk through the cut animals and would make a vow to that king, a covenant to that king, and as he's walking through the animals, he's saying, if I break that covenant, may the curse that came upon these animals come upon me. See the picture? As you're walking through death and destruction, you are vowing to the king to be faithful to him. And if you're not faithful, then the king has every right to bring that consequence and destruction upon you that just got brought upon these animals. It's a curse of death, clearly is what's happening. It's a very visual and messy way of a king making it clear to a subject that if you don't stay in line, I will destroy you the same way these animals are destroyed. See with the picture? It's how you cut a covenant. It was a very gruesome, real way and very clear way 
of the condition. Now, when we look at the hero of the covenant, you got to get something. Is first, as we look at this, we're going to see that God walks through the animals. So look with me in verse 17. And when the sun had gone down, so pause, um, Abraham cut the animals, and he's waiting for God to come and make the covenant. He knows what's happening. He's waiting for God to come. And even, I love how verse 11 ends, that the, that the buzzards were trying to come and get the carcasses, and Abram spent the day running off, you know, the buzzards, right? To the point where night came, he's sleepy, and he falls asleep, right? So he falls asleep, and in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces, referring to the animals. Verse 12 says, and when the sun had gone down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell on him, which is a picture between 12 and 17. Sun goes down, Abraham falls asleep. We see a deep darkness, which is representative of the judgment of God, come down on the situation, and God himself in a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. Now, how do we know that we believe that that is God himself? Well, because we recognize that God appears to Moses in what? A flaming bush. We see that God appears and leads his people by smoke and by fire both day and night. We see that God comes down on Mount Sinai in a cloud of smoke and fire. We see once the tabernacle is set up that God descends on the tabernacle in fire and smoke. We see in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit comes upon the people and it says they were as though who had fire on their heads. It's all a picture of God's presence there in that place. And we want to see the uniqueness. Remember that in a normal covenant, you have a king and a subject, because we're on the king-subject side, because we're not equal parties with God. We're the subjects. He's the king of all creation. The king and the subject, the subject walks through the animals. But here, we see God walk through the animals. And this is clearly what God is saying. When normally the subject walks through and says, if I am not faithful to the covenant, I vow these curses of destruction upon me. Get this, the king never walks through, but in this story, we see the king, God himself, walk through. And here's what he's saying, that if I'm not faithful to this covenant, I call down destruction upon myself. This is precisely when we look at Exodus 32 and 33, when we'll get to this in the coming months. But in Exodus 32 and 33, when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and what? The people of Egypt have created a golden calf to worship. And then God says to Moses, move out of my way so I can destroy all the people. What does Moses say? God, please remember your covenant you made with Abraham. He's saying, God, if you, you vowed this covenant on your own life and to break this covenant is, means destruction upon yourself. God is saying, I will be so faithful. The king is stepping in to the situation and saying, I will be so faithful to this covenant that I, if I am not faithful, I will bring on curses upon myself. So unique here as we look at the hero of the covenant is God walks through the animals in Genesis 15. But second, we see that Abraham never walks through the animals. See, but even then, when normally only a king wouldn't normally walk through, but only the subject would. When a king does walk through, there's still an expectation for the subject. Because there's still two parties. 
and the subject is the inferior party, but we see God walk through it, and neighbor Abraham never walks through it. So when God walks through it, he's saying, if I'm not faithful to the covenants, then I will bring destruction upon myself. But the fact that Abraham, get this, the fact that Abraham never walked through, here's what it's saying. He's saying, Abraham, even if you're not faithful to the covenant, I stand in your place and I will bring destruction upon myself. Which is precisely what has in mind in Galatians 3 when Paul writes this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I want us to get that in Genesis 15, when redemption, when God is setting up a covenant of redemption, he himself puts himself in the middle of the curses, and he says, if I'm not faithful to this covenant, I bring curses upon myself. And if you're not faithful to this covenant, I will bring curses upon myself. You see, God understood that for us to walk in perfect redemption with him, that we would not be faithful to the covenant. Therefore, Christ died in our place. His death on the cross is literally him standing in place of the curses that you and I deserve for not being faithful to covenant relationship with God. Jesus goes to the cross and he bears literally the fulfillment of Genesis 15 by bearing that curse upon himself so that you and I never have to. Do you see the beauty of Genesis 15 that right as when God steps into covenant relationship and he says, you know what, I'm going to redeem my people. How am I going to redeem my people? By making a covenant with Abraham. And I'm going to make this covenant in such a way that guarantees blessings upon my people. And the only way to guarantee blessings and salvation upon my people is ultimately in their unfaithfulness, I bear the curse of their unfaithfulness. I will bear the consequences of them not being faithful to this covenant. Normally, they would bear the consequences. But Jesus says, ultimately in himself, I bear the consequences. I take the curse that you deserve so that you can have the blessing that you don't deserve. That you can have the blessing that is promised to Abraham in faithfulness. When they were unable to be faithful, he is faithful. And as we continue to track all of Scripture all the way to Jesus... We're going to see over and over and over again two things. One, how we as humankind and how the Israelite people specifically are not faithful to the covenant relationship with God. We are unfaithful. But the second thing we're going to see is that God is always faithful. Even in our unfaithfulness, he is always faithful. Now, there's two ways you can respond to that recognizing this truth that you're telling me that God, even in my unfaithfulness, is always going to be faithful to me in covenant relationship. I'm answering that yes. You have two ways to respond. One, you can go, great. This means I can do whatever I want. I can continue to be unfaithful to the covenant. I can continue to rebel against the covenant. I can continue to sin against the covenant. I can continue to abuse this relationship because one side's covenant, one side's consumeristic, and that never works. Or you can respond in gratitude and surrender to him and serve him. See, the same plays out 
when we look at marriages. When you have one side that's covenant, one side that's consumeristic in the relationship, it doesn't work. But both have to be covenant. And when you and I, looking at God's relationship, when he says, he puts all his cards on the table, if you will, and says, I'm covenant all the way. The question is, are you going to step into relationship with God in a consumeristic contract? I'm in it until it no longer benefits me and I'm out. Or are you going to surrender in relationship to him and surrender to him as a subject to a king? And you're going to go, I show my card also, and it's also covenant. You're stepping in and going, I'm in it. I'm for it. Even, listen to this, because I'm in it even sometimes when things don't go my way. God, I'm in a relationship with you even when sometimes it doesn't make sense. Even sometimes when this unbelievable pain and hurt comes on my life, I trust that you're a good partner in this relationship and that you, Romans 8, makes it clear that you desire for goodness and love in my life for those who love him. And therefore, that if I love you and I serve you, even if it doesn't make sense, I trust that you're a good covenant partner and goodness is my reward. See, God's covenant, he's there. Question is, how will you respond? Consumeristic contract, good, I can do whatever I want and abuse his faithfulness, which scripture ultimately calls that disobedience and you don't know God or you recognize that God relates to us in covenant only, in relationship ultimately. Therefore, to be in relationship, to know him is to step into that covenant relationship and say, I'm all in. I'm in. I surrender my life to you. To use the marriage illustration for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. I'm in. That's what it means to walk in a covenant relationship. So the question I have for you is, do you know Jesus? Meaning, are you in covenant relationship with him? Recognizing that he's already bore the curse for you. That you, guess what, we're not perfect. And because of sin, there will be at times where we will not be faithful to the covenant. But we respond in repentance and grace to his faithfulness to the covenant. And we continue to worship him. And this is good news for a few reasons. One, because this gives us great confidence that when we do mess up and we are unfaithful to the covenant, I never have a concern tomorrow about God's love for me. Because God's love for me is not conditioned on me being faithful to the covenant. I strive to be faithful, absolutely, and I long to honor his forgiveness with my faithfulness. But when I'm unfaithful, I can have confidence that he is faithful no matter what. And so this allows me today, tomorrow, and the next day, in my sin, to come with great confidence and repentance that he will receive me by grace. Do you know Jesus? Are you in a covenant relationship with him? And if if not, I encourage you tonight, would you step in and surrender your life and walk into that covenant relationship? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you That Jesus, even when we are unfaithful to you, you are faithful to us. That doesn't give us license, Jesus, to just do and live however we want. But instead, we appreciate and understand that covenant. So we give our entire lives to serve you and to honor you and to show our gratitude and worship to you 
through our obedience and through our love. But we are grateful that even in our unfaithfulness, you are faithful. And so, Father, I pray that there's someone in this room tonight that does not know you as a Lord and Savior, covenantal relationship. They might know you in a consumeristic way, but not in a covenantal way. But tonight, they would step in and go, I'm all in. I'm surrendered to you as a Lord. And they will receive the grace and the mercy of Jesus who already bore the curse for them so that they could receive the blessings and the righteousness of relationship with you for all eternity. That redemption would be found in their hearts tonight. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is newhopenyc. Our website is newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you and we hope to see you soon.